Recently, I came across an article which began by asserting that it was the sinking of the Russian submarine Kursk which first prompted Russian President Vladimir Putin to reveal critical elements of his personality to the world. Curiously, the version of the article which I saw never went on to expand on this thought. So I turned back to Reflections from Asia number 139, this, by the way, is number 837, which dealt with the sinking of the Kursk soon after it had happened on 12th of August, the year 2000. Eternal Father, strong to save, whose arm has bound the restless wave, who bids the mighty ocean deep its own appointed limits keep, Oh, hear us when we cry to thee for those in peril on the sea. I first heard that mournful lament with its moving melody during World War II when it was sung with appropriate stiff upper lips at a poignant moment in the Noel Coward film about the Royal Navy in which we serve. It was equally affecting when I last heard the hymn played at the formal decommissioning of the very last battleship on active naval service, the USS Missouri at San Diego in 1992. And I imagined that the same sad dirge or its Russian equivalent was being played on August the 23rd, 2000, as many Russians and many non-Russians held services or just met informally to mourn the loss of 118 sailors, all hands on board the Russian submarine Krasnodar number 141, the Kursk. I include non-Russians because there is an unspoken fellowship among all those who go down to the sea in ships, and never more so among all those who accept the hazard of going under the sea in ships. Submariners everywhere, and particularly in the navy towns of San Diego or Norfolk, Virginia, Plymouth or Rosyth or Holy Lock, Cochin or Mumbai, Qingdao or Shanghai would have stopped for a moment to think and feel for the fate of their fellow submariners. Only those who have experienced the claustrophobia of service under the sea, the sheer terror that arises from underwater combat, and the sense of fear and helplessness that accompanied an unchecked dive to the ocean bed, can truly empathise with what the sailors on board Kursk suffered. For 116 sailors and two civilians, the curse became their tomb. From Americans in the United States Navy, there would have been the additional empathy, remembering that they had been here before, 37 years ago. On the 10th of April, 1963, the nuclear submarine USS Thresher suddenly sank in deep waters off the Canadian province of Nova Scotia. As with the Kursk, so with the Thresher. It was the nation's most advanced submarine, the best war machine that money could buy and that ingenuity could build. As with the Kursk, so with the Thresher. It went down so quickly that it had no time to communicate the reasons for its distress. But the Thresher and its crew of 129 sank in waters one and a half miles deep, way beyond the Navy's capability in those days to mount a rescue or recovery effort. 
As for the Russians in 2000, so for the Americans in 1963. The submarine disaster was a tremendous blow to their national prestige and self-esteem. For the Americans, something had to be done about it. The only deep-diving technology then available was the bathyscape, pioneered by the underwater explorer Jacques Picard. In 1960, Picard and a Navy lieutenant had taken the bath escape named Trieste to an unprecedented depth of 35,800 feet at a point in the Pacific called the Challenger Deep, about 200 miles from Guam. By the time of the Thresher disaster, the Trieste bath escape had been retired. The Navy recommissioned it in order to find the Thresher. This was accomplished after a protracted search. The submarine was eventually found at a depth of nearly 9,000 feet and it became obvious that the thresher had imploded as a result of the tremendous water pressure at that depth. The bath escape discovered shredded remains of the nuclear submarine all over the ocean floor. It was like an automobile junkyard, one of the Navy's explorers said. But the Americans did not wait until the thresher was found before reacting to the crisis. Long before that, the Navy set up a 58-man panel to exhaustively examine the U.S. deep-sea capabilities. The panel produced a report, which was then hailed as a turning point in our quest for knowledge and mastery of the undersea world. Quickly a process was set in motion whereby underwater technology was greatly enhanced, especially in relation to submarine rescue. That process ended in producing the two submersibles which were on standby in San Diego in case the Russians asked for help over Kursk. There was a reason why both submersibles were in San Diego instead of one being on the Atlantic seaboard and only one on the Pacific coast. The Clinton administration had then decided, as one more Navy cost-cutting measure, to decommission one of the submersibles four or five years before a new generation of even higher-tech rescue submarines was developed. The cursed disaster posed in dramatic form a profoundly political challenge to the Russian tendency to fall back on blaming foreigners for the nation's ills and the Russian military's unreformed disposition to fall back on Soviet Union reflexes of secrecy and lies. True to this form, the Russian Navy went on blaming the cursed disaster on a collision with either an American or a British nuclear submarine for the next 12 months without ever producing a shred of relevant evidence. The Kursk catastrophe also raises some grave questions, which only the Western powers can and must answer. But the questions that arise from the sinking of the Kursk also need asking in Beijing as China moves steadily closer to actually acquiring aircraft carriers. First, the Russian crisis. What was the Kursk? What was its mission? What was it doing as it went down? The American Navy has basically two classes of submarines, whereas the Russians have three. Both navies have ballistic missile submarines which sustain the balance of nuclear terror as they cruise in the ocean depths, plus hunter-killer submarines capable of a variety of defensive and offensive tasks. The Russians also have what they call powerful submarine cruisers and what the Americans more earthly describe as aircraft carrier busters.
Unlike the Russians, the Americans can exercise control of the seas with any one of 12 carrier battle groups. The Soviet Union devised, and Russia sustained, the Oscar class of submarines to contest such control. The Oscar class was not, as many reports have maintained, the largest submarine ever built. That title belonged to the Typhoon class of Russian ballistic missile subs, which weigh in at a mammoth 33,800 tons carrying 20 ballistic missiles. The Kursk and its sister subs were at 19,400 tons displacement, but with the Kursk full of water, it weighed 24 to 25,000 tons, making it an almost possibly difficult salvage task, though a Dutch firm eventually accomplished this task over a year later. The Kursk's main armament was 24 supersonic cruise missiles, possibly nuclear-tipped, potentially deadly to an aircraft carrier if fired from within 300 miles. That is why American carrier battle groups make it their business to know all about any potentially hostile ship or submarine moving within 300 miles of a carrier. A fact that apparently surprised Beijing when a Chinese submarine came within that 300-mile range of the carrier USS Kitty Hawk in the East China Sea a few years ago. On its last mission, the Kursk was on a rare Russian Navy exercise in the Barents Sea with roughly 30 other ships. The exercise was in preparation for the dispatch of a squadron, including Russia's only commissioned aircraft carrier, RNS Admiral Kuznetsov, to the Mediterranean in the autumn of the year 2000 on a flag-showing deployment. What precisely the Kursk was doing at the moment when there were two explosions, one measuring 3.5 on the Richter scale, has remained a matter of conjecture. The Americans never discovered what precisely happened to the thresher either. But it was surprising that the Kursk was reportedly given the order to practice firing while in only 300 feet of water. One conjecture in the Washington Times speculated that first a gas used to expel torpedoes instead of compressed air exploded, quickly setting off a larger explosion among the torpedoes of the Kursk. Probably the Kursk's double hull saved it from disintegrating like the thresher did. All this suggests a nation living far beyond its means. One single fact confirms it. The total Russian defence budget in the year 2000 was, at the then current exchange rates, a paltry five billion American dollars. Out of this $5 billion, it is estimated that the Russian Navy got only about 12% or a miserable $600 million. No wonder the Kursk and all other ships of the Russian Navy so rarely put out to sea. No wonder the systems on the Kursk were so unstable that the ship exploded. No wonder that there was no deep-sea divers anywhere in the Russian Navy capable of more quickly opening the one remaining escape hatch, which is what the Norwegian divers eventually did. No wonder that there was a nuclear time bomb, a whole series of floating Chernobyls lying idle and under insufficient care along the Kola Peninsula near Murmansk as roughly 100 nuclear submarines rot at their moorings. 
No wonder, too, that Russian admirals, unwilling to face the new and harsh reality, instead take refuge in Soviet reflexes born of a distant era when they were under few, if any, budgetary restraints. And finally, no wonder that President Putin himself fought shy of looking reality firmly in the face as when not so long ago he insisted that the Russian Navy has always been and remains the symbol of a strong Russian state and a pillar of its defense capability. At $600 million, it was an incredibly weak pillar. The sailors who died on the Kursk do not disprove Putin's statement, but their sacrifice did illustrate its hollowness. If Putin is to serve Russia well, he has an awful lot of difficult decisions to make, for as the Financial Times succinctly but not unsympathetically suggested in August 2000, the Kursk tragedy is a painful reminder to Russia of its declining capacity as a military power. Russia must now accept the limitations which its decrepit economy sets on its defence policies or run the risk of more disasters. Russia spent $1 billion building the Kursk but paid its captain only $150 a month. Of course, since that was written by the FT... The Russian economy has become much less decrepit, but still Russia in the year 2000 simply could not do all the things the Soviet Union once did. The evidence of the week or so following the Kursk catastrophe suggested that many in Moscow and Murmansk refused to accept this unpalatable truth. Yet if Putin's Russia proves capable of facing up to reality, it should gain in return a great deal of Western sympathy and support, especially in the enormous and expensive task of denuclearizing the Kola Peninsula. More nuclear disasters arising from the rotting remnants of the former Russian fleet will not merely hurt Norway, Finland and Russia, but could easily pollute Europe and Asia too. It was easy to think internationally and to sympathise with Russia during the attempted rescue of the 118 Kursk sailors. The danger is that in the aftermath of the tragedy, everyone will go back to thinking nationally and selfishly and in Cold War terms.